0: Genesis 21 at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now moving on to verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also but he is uh, because he is your offspring so abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and now moving on to verse 22 At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have a sojourn. And Abraham said, I will swear. And moving on to verse 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for reading uh, Hitan, And thank you, Brian and Joel for sending out the handout. You'll see that in the chat there. I think that will help you um, just keep track of what we're going to look at today. Um, It's a lot of data, a lot of um, interesting scenes here. So it would be really helpful if you can try and follow along. And you'll notice my question at the top of the handout today. Why is the promised sun the center of attention? And I wonder, maybe this puts a finger on a question that might've been lurking in your subconscious mind as we've been studying Genesis together. You know, why does it feel like the Abraham story is less about Abraham and more about a son that doesn't exist yet? It's as though all the action taking place in his story has one eye fixed on an empty crib. It's a strange dynamic, isn't it? So why is the promised son the center of attention? Well, it's not just a literary question as we work through Genesis together, is it? It's a question that's fundamental to Christian life. Uh, If anyone knows anything about being a Christian, it's that it's a life that revolves around Jesus. Whether it's uh, repenting and believing in him, living his way, telling the world of his works. You might define being a Christian as a life in which the promised son is the center of attention. You might even say that it's a life that revolves around the sun. And if you call yourself a Christian today, well, perhaps people notice that same strange dynamic in your life, that just as Abraham's story is in crucial ways more about the promised son, that your story is in crucial ways more about the Lord Jesus. And I wouldn't be surprised if this dynamic is not only the source of some of your greatest joys as a human being, but also some of your greatest frustrations, uh, discouragements, and pains. It's the most excellent thing in the world to have your life built around Jesus, but it's also incredibly challenging at times, and I'm sure uh, many of us are feeling that in some measure, even today on the call. It's so much simpler to live with yourself as the center of the universe, and it seems like the rest of the world seems to get on just fine like that. And so we might be a bit wary of a life that revolves around the sun. We might be tempted to find our own orbit. So why is the promised sun the center of attention? Well, here's a summary of where we're heading today. You'll see it on the handout there. The sun is born according to promise, and those who oppose him lose out on blessing, but those who make way for him enjoy life in his kingdom. And My big hope for today is that we come away convinced that life uh, revolves around the son because all hope of blessing is centered squarely on him. So let's take a look, shall we? Uh, firstly, the son is born according to promise. Read with me uh, from verse one. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. We've been waiting for Isaac's birth for quite some time in Genesis, haven't we? It's kind of been the the motif, the plot. And so I I wonder if you felt that Isaac's birth here was a little anticlimactic. I mean, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 15 years for this child. uh, And you and I at Covent Garden Talks, we've been waiting for a few weeks, a few chapters as readers. I mean, even the announcement of the son's birth a couple of chapters ago was delivered by angels. But here... Well, there's no fanfare. You know, verse two, he's born. Verse three, he's named. Verse four, he's circumcised. And in verses five to seven, we get uh, Abraham's age. And then Sarah noting how joyfully bizarre it is. that She would have a baby at the tender age of 90. And then that's it. And it's one of those moments where you wonder whether Moses, uh, the author of Genesis, kind of ran out of ink. You know, surely we're gonna get four or five pages waxing lyrical at Isaac's birth. I mean, this is the long awaited child of promise. We're expecting songs and poems and 300 angels and the Lord himself appearing and holding the baby up in the air Rafiki style. But instead, just seven very matter of fact dry verses and you almost feel like you could replace them with three words, Isaac was born. But I wonder if that's the point Uh, Look with me in verse 1. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. In verse 2, at the time of which God had spoken to him. God is simply doing what he said he would. And I think the brevity of this section is Moses' way of saying, hey, the big deal was when God made the promise. It's not a remarkable thing that God delivers on his promises. Moses is training us to take God at his word. And so I hope the brevity of this account, this account actually brings great confidence. And Moses thought it was a foregone conclusion that God would deliver on his promises, and we can too. But I think Moses would kind of want to be more specific in his application here. I think he wants his readers to identify the type of thing that God has promised and delivered on here. So Isaac was long dead by the time that Moses wrote of him. And so Moses longed to see the day when the true offspring would arrive, the kind of son who is going to bring order to a world of disorder. You can recall that promised offspring of the woman back in chapter three, that one glimmer of hope for a hurting world. The offspring who, like Isaac, has the miraculous birth, in his instance, born to a virgin. The offspring who, like Isaac, is pre-announced by angels, who, like Isaac, is the true son of Abraham, who, like Isaac, is the true child of God's promises. And I guess what I mean to say here is, if you've understood Genesis rightly, then when Jesus appears on the scene, you'll recognize him as the promised son and you'll come to him for blessing. We'll say more on that later. But at this point, you're probably noting that many want nothing to do with Jesus, which brings us to our second point. You'll see this on the handout there the son is born according to promise and those who oppose him lose out on blessing our second scene features Isaac's weaning party so a few years have passed Isaac was likely three or four years old at this point um, as children were typically waned, uh, weaned uh, a little later in ancient times but it was an important milestone Uh, You can imagine infant mortality much higher then. So to make it to three or four years was a real accomplishment, something to celebrate. And this feast recalls the festivities back in chapter 18, when Isaac's impossible birth was first foretold. But now that laughter back in chapter 18 at the far-fetched has become, become the laughter of fulfillment as Sarah holds her babe in arms. And it's a heartwarming scene to picture, isn't it? Now, back in my parents' place in Sydney, there's a big cabinet with family photos from when me and my sisters were toddlers, you know, various birthday parties, etc. back from that era when you got photos developed and printed, if anyone remembers that. And I'd imagine that Abraham's family day here is the stuff of those sunny, sepia-toned Kodak moments. You know, you kind of hear soft music playing in the background as you look at them. But in the corner of this image, well, there are one or two who aren't that thrilled about Isaac's milestone. If you'll read with me from verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, we we'll have to be careful here. It's possible to come away from this passage concluding that Sarah's just being the fun police, you know, stifling Hagar's son's joy d'aviv. But we're meant to see Ishmael's laughter as rivalrous mockery. If you're reading from the ESV, you might notice a little footnote there on verse 9, possibly laughing in mockery. And I think this is right. And this is how the Apostle Paul understands it in his letter to the Galatians. And so as one son, Isaac, enters boyhood from infancy, uh, the other son, now a teen, thrust out of the limelight, jeers at him. I mentioned before that Ishmael is set up as a rival to Isaac. And maybe you've noticed how similar Isaac and Ishmael are. You know, they're both sons of Abraham. They're both circumcised, but both promised to be mighty nations. They are both promised to have royal offspring. And as Ishmael laughs here, it's almost like he's usurping Isaac's position in the family as the child of laughter. You might recall Isaac's name means he laughs. I mean, it's almost like Ishmael and Isaac are the same person. But there's one big difference. Only Isaac is the child of promise. The covenant promises belong only to the promised son produced by God, not to the stopgap son produced by Abraham out of his impatience. And this bitter rivalry. It has all the makings of another Cain and Abel scenario, you know, the oldest son driven to jealous murder. And so Sarah's course of action to eject Hagar and Ishmael, even if it's driven by sinful motivations, well, ultimately it's protecting the covenant promise. But Abraham can't stomach the prospect. If you look in verse 11, uh, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham is a doting father. He loves Ishmael. He's his own flesh and blood. But it's almost like he hasn't grasped the uniqueness of Isaac. You know, he's so attached to Ishmael. We kind of wonder whether Abraham considers them a peer with Isaac that they're kind of twins in some strange way. And God has to reinforce that Isaac is the only true offspring. And I wonder if we tend to think a bit like this too. We don't really grasp the uniqueness of the child of promise. We entertain worldly substitutes to God's promised son. But God is clear to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so Hagar Hagar and Ishmael are cast out to wander the wilderness. And it reminds us a bit of chapter 16, doesn't it? A a spat with Sarah leaving Hagar alone in the wilderness. And there was a time where Hagar learned that actually, well, God sees her. He hears her. He cares for her. Uh, And so maybe this is just a bit of a time out for Hagar. Maybe she's going to learn something here. You know, this is a time of quiet reflection to get her thoughts straight before humbly coming back. Abraham's fold and blessing the child of promise instead of cursing him. I mean, it's the only reasonable option, isn't it? Isaac's the hope of the entire world, and even Hagar knows it, even if the very idea makes her brim with jealousy. But she has no intention of returning. In fact, she's so intent on a clean break from Abraham's lot that when the water runs out, Hagar gives up on life for her and her son. She's even given up believing the promise that God made her that Ishmael would be a great nation. It's almost as though her contempt for the promised son has led her to suppress what she already knows of that God who sees her, who hears her, who cares for her. And I'm sure we see that kind of belief all around us today. But even as Hagar um, weeps prayerlessly, uh, God does hear. Not her, but the expiring boy. If you look with me in verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So even if Hagar doesn't turn to God for help, well, God, who cares for the nations, who keeps his promises to Abraham's son, Ishmael, saves her and her son from sure death. And so maybe now, maybe now, Hagar might return to Abraham and seek the blessing that only his family can give. But as Hagar's story ends in verse 21... His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Even after the God of Abraham saves her, she seeks out a pagan wife for Ishmael. She wants to live in the wilderness and not return. And I think we as readers are meant to see this as something of a a middle finger from Hagar to Abraham and his family, even to the God who sees her, who hears her, who cares for her. She'd rather go out cursing the child of promise and being cursed than return in humility and be blessed by him. She'd rather live in her own cursed kingdom of her own making in the wilderness than submit to the promised son and be blessed. You know, we describe the Christian life as one that revolves around the promised son. And actually, people feel threatened by the difference that Jesus will make on their existence. If your life currently revolves around self or relationships or career or family or Allah or a golden calf. Well, when God's king arrives requiring total submission, it feels like a threat. It's an imposition. It's a huge deal to recalibrate your orbit, to shift your center of gravity, I think Abraham and Hagar, they're learning the hard way. Abraham's learning that the solar system of his life can't house two sons. And I wonder if you've learned that, this passage, that maybe you've kept Jesus in competition and not recognizing his supremacy, his peerlessness. You're hedging your bets. And Hagar realized how significant the promised son was and it made her sick to her stomach. She'd rather wander the wilderness on her own terms than enjoy life in the sun's kingdom. Some of us in the world so recoil at the idea of living with Jesus as Lord that we would rather face death as kings and queens of our own cursed monarchies. But if we just come to the sun, we would have blessing. Which brings us to our third point. Uh, More briefly, if you've tuned out, this is a good time to tune in, particularly if you're curious about how this bit even fits in with the rest of it. Uh, The son is born according to promise and those who oppose him lose out on blessing, but those who make way for him enjoy life in his kingdom. The third scene of this act uh, features a familiar face, the righteous foreign king Abimelech from a couple of weeks ago. And it, it takes place at the same time as the events just passed. I think we're meant to see these as parallel episodes. You look with me in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. think this is what's happened Abimelech has heard of the birth of Isaac I mean it's possible even that he was there at Isaac's weaning feast he's seen and understood that Abraham's God can call a baby into existence from nothing and you can just imagine the gears turning in Abimelech's head as he sees Isaac on Sarah's lap he might even have been there when Hagar and Ishmael were ejected And it seems that this king has grasped something of the significance of this miracle child. When he sees Isaac, he sees an emerging force to be reckoned with, fueled by the promise and power of God. And he knows his own kingdom can't compete. But while Abimelech reveres Abraham's God, I think he's a little bit wary of Abraham. And maybe you would be too if you were duped like Abimelech was back in chapter 20. And I think that's why he's brought the commander of his army with him, just in case some of these negotiations turn sour. You know, he both recognizes that the the world revolves around this child of promise, but that Abraham has been less than trustworthy. He's cursed the nations. If Abraham was to turn his son against Abimelech, well, that would mean sure destruction for his foreign kingdom. And I think this threat sheds light on the two requests that he makes of Abraham in verse 23, if you'll look at verse 23 with me. Firstly, he asks, do not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity. And secondly, as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you've sojourned. This isn't merely a treaty to avoid hostility with the father of nations and his offspring, like you stay over there and I'll stay over here. It's a treaty for partnership with the son forever, for love and kindness and friendship. It's as though Abimelech sees the child of promise and says, he's the future. He's the hope. He's where the blessings are coming from. I want to hitch my wagon to him. And so he wants it in writing. He wants it instituted that the blesser of nations will no longer curse him, but bring him blessing. And it's such a far cry from Hagar's stroppy rejection, isn't it? I think we're meant to compare and contrast Hagar and Abimelech, both foreigners, both responding to the appearance of the promised son and the imposition it brings, but in very different ways. Hagar can't stomach reorienting her life around the promised son if it means swallowing her pride. Abimelech reveres the promised son, and so he takes the initiative to align himself with the center of blessings. And amazingly, it's not the insider, Hagar, who dwelled along the promised son who rightly acknowledges him. It's the outsider. And it's not the servant girl who spent her life in submission who submits. It's actually the foreign king who submits to no one who bends the knee. I mean, isn't Abimelech's humility such a striking model response? And I think these contrasts are here to control for the unrighteous and the righteous response. That there are two ways that people will respond when they encounter the promised son that Moses is training us to acknowledge. Contemptuous rejection or humble submission. I mean, there's just so much explanatory power for what we see as the gospel goes out, isn't there? Abraham agrees to Abimelech's proposal, uh, but not, not without first addressing a grievance. You might find this a bit of a strange one. In verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abimelech's company have taken Abraham's well without Abimelech knowing. And in a conversation about peace in the land and no more false dealings, Abraham considers considers it's relevant to the proceedings to bring it up. And I'm not sure what you make of Abimelech in verse 26. I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I've not heard of it until today, whether you believe him or not. You might remember when Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions was put on trial before the Senate for his alleged dealings with Russia. And that meme worthy refrain when he was being grilled on the details, I do not recall. It was terribly suspicious, wasn't it? <laughs> and we might picture Abimelech in a similar light here, you know, kind of winking at the camera as Abraham looks away. But I think we're meant to see him as full of integrity. Now, we've had no reason to doubt Abimelech in the past as a righteous man. But this moment's also an interesting parallel. To last week so just like in last chapter abimelech has unknowingly mistakenly taken something from abraham back then it was abraham's wife sarah here abraham's well back then god had to force this heel dragging abraham to do his job as father of nations and make restitutions so what will abraham do now well we're going to see abraham go above and beyond to bless Abimelech in verse 27 he makes a covenant giving sheep and oxen and he seems to have learned this from God you know just as God made a covenant back in chapter 15 to reassure Abraham of his doubts about the land so Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech to reassure him about his doubts about the land but it doesn't stop there in verse 28 if you'll read with me Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart and Abimelech said to Abraham what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So what's going on here? Abraham doesn't just want peace. He wants to make it abundantly clear to the world that God not Abimelech has given him a slice of the land that he promised. It's a move of great faith, isn't it? You might wonder why both this scene and the previous one features wells, uh, feature wells prominently. You know, God gave Hagar a well in the wilderness back in verse 19, here God's giving Abraham a well in the promised land. Uh, having water is something that you and I take for granted, isn't it? I have this gigantic uh, water bottle that I keep on my table. It probably indicates how little I leave my desk these days. But I I just turn a tap in my kitchen to fill it up. Fresh water on demand. But it wasn't so in Abraham's day. Uh, You couldn't dwell anywhere without a water source. So this well is a sign of Abraham and his offspring having the ability to live in the land forever. And so in verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham plants a tree in the land. And I think it's a symbol of his offspring uh, taking root and flourishing there, so to speak. He's taking a claim in the land for the generations. And it's at this point, that we can draw things together. There's been a lot of detail, hasn't there? Three really densely packed scenes. And I think we're left asking, well, what has Abraham learned that has enabled him to finally act with such great faith? Well, he's learned that all of the promises of God will find their fulfilment in the offspring, the promised son. As Abraham calls on the everlasting God in verse 33, he's finally grasping the everlasting covenant. It's that same word from back in chapter 17, that the promises of the land and of the blessing of a mighty nation. They're going to come through the promised son. The land and blessing will come through the offspring. You might say that all God's promises find their yes in him. And it's through seeing his own flesh and blood, Ishmael, forcibly removed to make room for this son. It's through seeing Abimelech turn up with his war general in tow to negotiate with him that Abraham finally cottons on to what the rest of the world has already realised. That the child of promise is more significant than he could have ever imagined. All of the promises of God centre on him. Do you recognize how significant the child of promise is that the land, the blessing, the mighty nation come only through Jesus? You know, we started by asking, why is the promised son the center of attention? Well, all of God's promises find their yes in him. The land is his, the heavenly kingdom, the blessing is his restoration of a world of death and rebellion and the nation is his, the the global church of believers, you and me being assembled as the gospel goes out. Take Jesus out of the picture and you have nothing. But a life that revolves around Jesus is a life that inherits all of the promises. We're gonna be so tempted to find our own orbit apart from him, but we'll just be wandering in the wilderness. Abraham finally grasps the truth of the significance of the promised son as we finish in chapter 21. And perhaps we've grasped it too, that the hopes of a world in ruins are centred exclusively on the offspring. Do we realise the unmatched privilege of a life that revolves around the son? I think we'll have a chance for discussion in a moment, but why don't I lead us in prayer as we wrap up? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this amazing um, seminal revelation to Abraham. He finally realises what he has in the child of promise. And I pray that we would have that same realisation, we would finally know what we have in the Lord Jesus, that the big solution to the problems that we observe in Genesis 1 through 11, a fallen world that seems without any hope, finds its hope in jesus the source of all blessing and so i pray that we would be unreserved in our building a life around him lives that revolve around him and be unashamed that he really is the center of our existence we pray that in jesus name amen